welcome to the Data Democracy. Presented by renowned O'Reilly author Olaf Olsen Banyut. Empowered by Xenia. Make your data accessible and discoverable by anyone, anywhere, at any time. Hi everybody. You're listening to the Data Democracy podcast, and I'm your host, Ole Olesen Benjø, Chief Evangelist in Cinea and the author of the Enterprise Data Catalog, published by O'Reilly. In this podcast, we explore what a data democracy is. Today's guest is Catherine Jamo. Catherine Jamo, KJ, is Principal Data Scientist at ThoughtWorks, and she is also the author of Practical Data Privacy, published by O'Reilly. I wanted to talk to KJ about her book, her career, and what data privacy is in general. And the conversation was really mind-stimulating, as you will hear in a bit. Here are my takeaways from the conversation. First of all, as a data leader, uh, you should know that privacy is not something you turn on or off. It's something that unfolds at a continuum. And so, and that's the second takeaway, don't let uh, privacy be a blocker uh, instead. Think about it as you enable or disable uh, features that enhance or decrease data privacy. And third, the final takeaway for data leaders, hire data privacy engineers. You need them in order to build a robust and secure data infrastructure. Okay, some data democracy takeaways. First of all, the most important takeaway here is that people should have the right to control how their data is being used. That goes in society in general, but that also goes for company, companies, uh, employees, and the way they use data harvested from society. I think one of the biggest takeaways here is the second one. KJ pointed out that this will not limit the analytical potential of the data that you give uh, the right to control the usage of it back to the users that have created this data. It will not limit the analytical potential. In fact, it will uh, increase the analytical uh, potential because the usage will become way more precise. And then finally, the third takeaway, data privacy people are really nice. So remember to include them when you build your data democracy. Don't exclude them, you need them. But more than that, they are also just very, very nice. And you can definitely hear that from my conversations with KJ. We had a lot of good laughs. So uh, tune in and sit tight. Here it comes. Hi, KJ. Hi, Ola. And I'm happy to have you on. Uh, So for the guests, uh, can you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, your professional experience, uh, your educational background, stuff like that? Yeah, so um, I'm currently a principal data scientist here at ThoughtWorks, so we're a global consultancy, um, and I work on data machine learning things, but my focus for the past six years has been on data privacy and kind of like the related field of ethics, right, which we can discuss in machine learning, um, which means I've done a lot of work in deep learning because that's mainly what we do now. Um, I've done a little bit of work in transformers, but I've mainly been focused on bringing privacy technologies and emerging privacy technologies within to the machine learning space. Um, I have a long, long background in NLP, so I was kind of doing natural language processing before I moved into privacy. And uh, for that, I have some really, uh, I have some exciting thoughts about your your book because there's some pretty (laughs) cool NLP concepts in here and 
Um, I think it's really exciting that you're kind of combining uh, this idea of data discoverability with NLP and so forth. I think that has some exciting things. And where I started my career was in data journalism. So I worked at a large newspaper in the U.S. called the Washington Post um, as essentially an investigative data journalist um, and as somebody helping build what at the time we called news applications, which is a lot of how do we present data to users um, so that when we have cool investigative stories, we can display it to them in a way that makes sense. And in school, um, I studied statistics, but by way of political science and economics. And so um, oh, what that a background. was some of what I, what I did. I was really into math, but at the time, people told me the only job I would ever get with math was being a math teacher. <laughs> so that didn't sound so appealing. So, um, but I'm still a big math fan. So... That's uh, that's very odd. I mean, uh, mathematics is one of the most uh, desired uh, skills for so many disciplines out there. Uh, I can't believe you got that advice. I, I have never heard of anyone. <laughs> pretty actually. poor advice. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty poor advice. I mean, uh, who who uh, who would who would come up with that? Don't kind trust. Of advice? Yeah, U.S. Don't, high schools. Not a great. Not a great. <laughs> Don't 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 do any complicated stuff for your studies. Don't don't do that. I mean, you, it won't get you anywhere. <laughs> okay, okay, that's pretty bad advice. But uh, um, you obviously uh, had a very impressive career, and um, and uh, well, things you did in your work life. Uh, anyway, um, that sounds super interesting uh, with the Washington Post. So was that was that like the things you saw there was that what made you interested in privacy or was that later on that was actually later on so i think the washington post taught me a lot about nlp um which by the way so like i went to university during ai winter there was no such thing as machine learning i actually started as a computer scientist and most of our first classes were building java applets and i basically wanted to kill myself i was like this is the worst <laughs> thing ever i'm never gonna <laughs> so took, sucked the joy life, out of yeah, computers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like how can you make computers awful build a java applet <laughs> that's how you can make computers awful. <laughs> oh, so um so yeah so uh, my work at the Washington Post was around the first time I think people were really thinking of large-scale document processing, and I got to participate in some of that. And also, uh, kind of near and dear to your stuff, thinking through like user interfaces to explore data. Hmm. Um, and hmm. often we had a lot of text data, you know, where we were a newspaper, and hmm. so I was part privy to some of those conversations of. Um, entity recognition and and tagging and so forth and i think that that was really cool uh to be a part of and i think that sparked my interest to in nlp so after i left um i went on to to help lead a team at usa today building interactives and i got to do more statistical uh, work there and then i eventually left and i worked with a startup that was focused on nlp so oh cool cool yeah so yeah so I mean, I'm thinking of all these massive uh, leaks uh, that newspapers have been coordinating uh, globally yes. uh, for the last couple of decades, I think it is, or at least what the last decade. So it's been very interesting to follow. 
for me completely as an outsider, but you must have been right in the center of all that. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty exciting, obviously. Um, I don't know how well-known the Washington Post is worldwide, but within the United States, it's one of oh, the leading yeah. papers, particularly for political news in the U.S., which is also why um, I was very interested in joining the team there. And, of course, brilliant journalists there, just really, uh, especially the investigative side, but also even the local news side. I worked with a lot of, um, I worked for the local news team for a while, Um, I think journalism is extremely important and unfortunately a bit undervalued and uh, hmm. we could talk about the way that maybe also some of our field has contributed to that and yeah. and also the, you know, kind of the new situation with generative AI and the risk that it poses journalists, I think. But when you have had a chance to work in a newsroom, especially a leading newsroom, you see the amount of knowledge and effort and passion and investigation that goes into every single piece of content that's produced uh, for the most part. And that um, is quite inspiring. Yes, yes, yes. I completely agree. It's uh, it's kind of a track we shouldn't go too much down of uh, by because it's, it's not really the topic of the podcast, but it's very, very interesting still like i think in certainly in journalism we see both a lot of opportunities but also something that broke a little bit with the rise of of like modern tech mm -hmm. and how to fix that is, is super interesting um and and necessary mm -hmm. absolutely we we should perhaps dedicate a couple of minutes later on in the conversation but i really <laughs> it's, it's super interesting at least but i i still want to like when did this privacy when when did that got under your skin i mean what, what how did it occur in your how did you like move towards it it must have been something that you realized at some point that you wanted to move into that yeah i mean um i think there's i think there's probably a few themes there's probably maybe some of of growing up, um, I was involved in various forms of activism. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, uh, during a time of a lot of political change. I mean, maybe there's not never a time of not a lot of political change in the U.S., but during a time of a lot of political change, and I was involved in a variety of activism there, kind of helping try to fight for anti-racism, fight for Um, equality amongst people, um, fight for better representation amongst people, and so on and so forth. And um, interestingly enough, like eventually some of the work that I was doing there got uh, got picked up, you know, essentially we had some of the activist groups I was involved in were being surveilled by the U.S. government. So that was maybe like a first taste Um, but I think that that was just a small taste and it didn't influence my work. I kind of saw it as separate. Um, however, then when I moved to Germany um, and I moved around the time of the Snowden leaks and so forth, I think I got a little bit more interested in what does it mean in a digital space. And then I think also the longer that I worked in machine learning, the more it was obvious to me the Uh, questions that we were being asked to produce and the impact that they would have when we feed personal data into models was significant. And I started then, of course, also in NLP. We work with a lot of sensitive data sources. And I started to question, um, is this really the intention of, A, how we want to use machine learning? I think machine learning is pretty cool. I want to use machine learning, but is this the right way to do it? And B, what is the impact that we're having, like, 
are we solving the right problems with machine learning? How can we focus on solving the right problems? And I kind of went through a journey through kind of ethics in machine learning to thinking about how do I have an, a real impact? And for me, that ended up in privacy, where I said, in my opinion, based on the work that I've done in ethics and machine learning, um, giving users choice, giving communicating with users how their data is being used, and giving machine learning people the ability to use data more responsibly um, with regards to privacy. This was, for me, something that I saw as a clear way to have direct impact on machine learning that we do today. Oh, yeah, that's... I've, that's very relevant uh, experience. I could definitely understand that you felt the need to uh, to, to 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 get deeper into this um, uh, topic. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, if you if you can kind of like uh, I don't know if you can give a short answer to this, but 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 how would you say uh, data privacy is important in society in general? I mean. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think like, uh, I think that you probably know my opinions from the book quite well. And yes. obviously, the book is like a good resource for hearing some of my thoughts. But I mean, essentially, privacy, when we think about it, it's a, a few different concepts. And one, there's social and cultural understandings, there's uh, legal understandings, or even political understandings of privacy. And then there's technical understandings of privacy. And I think when we think through social privacy or individual privacy, so how do I interact with the world? How do I present myself? Um, how do I share information depending on my audience? All of these allow me to have some element of, of power and control over who I am. And I think when we think in a digital space, uh, some of that translation of what we've built as humans through most likely thousands of years of evolution and deciding how do we interact with each other and how do we meet new people and how do we socialize ourselves that um, because of moving to the internet and digi digitalization overall, um, it's much less apparent how we present ourselves and what information we show and what control we have over it. And so I think some of the work of putting data privacy into technology is making it more clear to users how they're interacting, allowing them to navigate in ways where they can, where they would navigate in the real world, where they can decide how they present themselves, where they can decide how other people might perceive them. And I think giving people more of this control and more of this understanding too, really, because they also need to build competence around what, what is my data being used for, what data represents me, and how it is that many, many small data pieces can build a quite unique picture of who you are. Um, some of this maybe should be more, at least more transparent and, and readily communicable and be then more controlled by the user. Um, and I think honestly, that wouldn't hurt our work as technologists for the most part. I think actually it provides better user experience. And at the end of the day, I think if we we're providing a better user experience, you know, from your work, uh, we have good, <laughs> we have good outcomes, right? Mm, mm. And so I think the current view of like, let's take as much personal data as possible, because then we're going to provide a better experience. This may be not actually true, no. because people are annoyed sometimes when we do that and don't talk. With them. 
Yeah, that's oh, that's very true. That's a lot of truth in in a, in in not a, in not many sentences. Uh, I um, if I also read your book. Now you mentioned my book. I have your book right here, and uh, you can definitely sense. Yes, Aureli authors. <laughs> uh, in your book, I can definitely sense what you have mentioned so far. Uh, this activist background—it's a very for for an Aureli book. Your book struck me as a very political book. <laughs> now I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it as a compliment. I mean yeah. it's it's so rare to see tech books have uh, have bold uh, takes, bold opinions in them. And I can definitely see that you are both an activist and someone that agitates for societal uh, change. And then you also have this enterprise angle on privacy. And and I think uh, that balance is, is really interesting. Um, so So trying to dive deeper into the enterprise side of things, how do you think, why is data privacy important for companies? What can they learn from thinking more about data privacy? Yeah, well, obviously, so I've been in, in Europe for the past nearly 10 years of my career. I live in Germany. Um, obviously, data privacy here is taken extremely seriously. And um, I enjoy that. I really like that. That's part of why I live here. Um, but I think what happens is that data privacy becomes a blocker, actually, for new data initiatives. And what I see by the likes of the larger tech companies, particularly the FANGs and so forth, is they've learned how to leverage data privacy in a way that allows them to still make new offerings, still work with sensitive data, still have new insights, perform machine learning, the variety of person-related data. And what I see in Germany, at least, and you'll have to let me know what you think it is in Germany. Denmark, but also across Europe, obviously, because we have a stronger regulatory environment, it also means that um, there is more sensitivity to these topics. And I think that one thing that we can learn is we don't have to be afraid of using sensitive data if we knowingly uh, actually go about doing that. And I think what often happens is either in Europe you work at a company that decides we don't care about data privacy, which is obviously also not a great uh, point of view for your users. There's reputational risks, there's brand risks, there's also the fact that users might just go use a different service, but B, um, or B, that we don't use any uh, person-related data, which obviously if you're trying to provide services for humans, not using human input is a good way to fail. <laughs> and so, And so I think like, we have to find this compromise and there is a tension. And um, I think that my book talks a lot about this tension and trying to figure out how to navigate it. Yeah, yeah. And one of it is like human oriented design, talking with your users. I mean, that's a pretty good way to get input. Um, and another of it is the technology and deciding like, okay, cool. We have tools. There are emerging technologies in privacy field that allow us to do these things more responsibly and it doesn't have to be an on-off thing. It can be a range. Yeah, so it, it, that is definitely what it can be uh, as, as, as I learned in your book. I mean, I've been thinking about it as a, uh, let me just admit it, as a complete amateur. <laughs> I'm not a, a data privacy expert in any way, but I have I've always been struck by this, like 
in, in so many uh, enterprise applications, you see this turn privacy on off yeah. uh, tab <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'm turning privacy on now. Now it's privacy. <laughs> and and it's and it's always struck me like, but as again, as an amateur, like that that can't be true. I mean, that's not it's not something that you can turn on and off, right? So and so when I read your book, it had this wonderful figure. It's for for the readers that are interested, it's it's figure two one that I'm referring to. Um, that describes the continuum of anonymity. Can can you can you unfold for for the listeners what what that continuum is? Yeah. So a lot of times in the privacy field we call it um, the the privacy utility, or we can talk about like information versus entropy. So like there's this tension essentially between um, full information without with no protections. Um, and we could call that also full utility of the data. And that means we take all data, presuming that we've collected it appropriately and there's not errors in the data that we've collected, which of course is a huge <laughs> assumption. Yeah. Um, and that uh, from your work that is properly labeled, that we know where it comes from, that we understand how it fits into our scheme, also another huge assumption, right? So, <laughs> but we essentially have this idea, 100% information um, is 0% privacy, right? Particularly if we're talking about personal data. And then on the other end, we have complete privacy, which means no information. So uh, from information theory perspective, if you've ever studied information theory, you can kind of start to reason about these ends. And uh, full privacy would be zero data, right? So, <laughs> so we obviously, if we work in data, we want like maybe to be somewhere between those points yeah. um, and closer to the utility side. And um, that graphic or what that figure shows um, and it's not meant to be linear. I think it's probably a nonlinear um, space more. But the idea is that there's different technologies you can choose. There's different methods you can choose. Simple ones like pseudonymization, like tokenization, like removal of personal data. Those are some methods. But we have encryption methods. We have things like differential privacy. We have a variety of technologies that allow for us to think through where on this spectrum can we land? And figuring that out is really probably a data scientist's job, but maybe also a general data conversation or a conversation at your company where you can start thinking of how much information do we actually need to solve the problem at hand? And is there ways that we can provide more privacy for users, but still get the information that we need? And I think that that's Honestly, it's a pretty cool math and statistics problem. So mm. if you're in data because you like that stuff, I very much would welcome you into privacy. Mm. Um, but it's also a kind of cool product thinking exercise because you're also keeping always users in focus and thinking through, mm, are people really comfortable sharing this information? Is there another way that we could give them a choice of getting the utility of what we're providing them, right? Because at the end of the day, we want to provide user value. Um, but somehow sharing the data less uh, less clearly or with less information. We can do that with a variety of methods. Yeah, so that was exactly what I got out of your figure, right? That this kind of unfolds this entire discipline that privacy is. It's not an either or. It's something in between and it's that judgment also executed via mathematics that really is um, privacy. 
and you talk about this as privacy engineering. Can you unfold also for the listeners what privacy engineering is all about? I I was honestly, uh, it was the first time I heard that uh, term, but I think it will emerge and become more popular. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think it's a it's an evolving field. So I've definitely uh, interacted with some people that think like. Okay, privacy engineering is A, and that's mm. the only thing it is. And I think that there's there's been a community of practice around privacy engineering for some time now. And I don't want to discount all of the amazing work that has been done on privacy engineering. And some of that is exactly kind of probably the interfaces you've seen, where it's like, can we turn privacy on? Can we apply um, privacy to specifically documented areas of our data? Like I really liked your CISO DPO conversation um, in your book because I think that that's like, uh, so like for, for folks who haven't read the book, um, it's this idea of like, what is confidential data? What is person-related data? Like how do these uh, play with each other and how do we put appropriate, uh, you know, complement these ideas in interfaces and in ability for people to discover data because um, what we don't want to do is turn the data completely off And um, I think, so the field of privacy engineering kind of has emerged over now decades to, to do that. Um, I kind of come in in the newer group of privacy engineering, which is people that are actively already working in data science and machine learning and who are bringing cool privacy technologies, which uh, a lot of times people were referred to as privacy enhancing technologies or privacy preserving techniques. So those are common uh, names in the field. And we're kind of like the new guard of privacy engineering. And there is a bit of tension, uh, I, I must admit. But I think the field of privacy engineering itself is is growing and is encompassing more of the conversations between maybe folks that have more a policy-oriented, uh, procedure-oriented view of how do we implement uh, privacy in engineering. And those of us that are kind of working on more the newer research-led science that is evolving some of the ways that we can engineer privacy into applications. And I'm actually currently um, in interviewing a series of people who don't have privacy engineer in their title, but who are doing privacy engineering work. Yeah. And uh, my first video is already out. Um, if people want to check it out, uh, the name is probably private on YouTube. And I have a new video coming out next week focusing on cryptography. So oh, that's a, cool, that's a cool. fun, yeah, so it's fun. And I, I wish I could give you an answer for privacy engineering, but I think overall it's the idea of how do we support in the field of both software and in data, how do we support privacy being designed into systems? Yeah, cool. Thank you. And I remember when I, I, I posted a big review on your book uh, on LinkedIn and, and there was some, there was some, <laughs> Uh, there was some guy saying, but that is not privacy engineering. Privacy engineering is exactly this. And I kind of felt like, I don't know if I answered or not, but I, it's like the whole point is there is no single definition of this yeah. yet. So, yeah, yeah. so, so if you want to comment uh, and, and be so bold about what you think, maybe read the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's, but I th that's but I also think, for Yeah, right? there's uh, there's also been people working on the field, like there's a privacy engineer handbook. There's like been oh, folks working yeah. in the field for, for now decades. So I think I think it's more just a, around 
you know, having those conversations of different disciplines within privacy engineering, which I'm sure you've encountered in your work in in data documentation, cataloging and design and discovery oh, yes. and so forth. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> People telling me how things should be <laughs> that because they have done so for decades. But yeah. yeah, sometimes they're also right. I mean, it shouldn't discard history all altogether. Of course. Right? Um, of course. Okay, so, uh, so I have a couple of questions left. I uh, think First of all, what what would be your best uh, advice if you want to get started in a in a career in uh, with privacy? Yeah, that's a a great question. I mean, the cool thing is there's so many different aspects of privacy because um, it is such a multidisciplinary field in and of itself. I'm a, I'm gonna make an assumption that a lot of folks that are listening to your uh, your podcast, your media, and so mm-hmm. forth that they come from data more of the engineering and science background. And if so, then A, I would encourage you maybe to read the book if you're interested. Um, that might give you a little tid- tidbit or taste of different aspects. But B, um, to start to decide, okay, within if you want to move to privacy, what are the skill sets that you have now that you'd like to leverage in the field of shifting to privacy? So if you're a data engineer, um, or if you're um, already working in data governance, then you have uh, automatically have a way that you can immediately take things like privacy and build them into your workflows. Um, there's a few examples in the book around uh, appropriately tagging and filtering sensitive data, working on lineage. This is extremely important in privacy and, and extremely important in data, and yet is often something that we overlook, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, working and thinking through access requests so how do we grant people access and are there ways for us to grant access to data that is better protected while people still get their job done and if you're more in the science and data science and machine learning side um, you might be interested then to look at kind of the the more ways that we build this into machine learning systems that we build this into data science tests and then you might be more drawn to ideas like differential privacy or federated machine learning, or even encrypted machine learning. Um, oh. And those are also some cool other parts of the book. And if you, if you ever, uh, if people are interested and want to reach out, I'm happy to help give some advice on career paths and so forth. But I think there's also a burgeoning community within privacy engineering. And privacy people are super nice and welcoming. It is... Um, it's been like a real nice thing compared to maybe some of the machine learning community when I first joined. I was like very intimidated. Um, privacy people, I think like it's a human oriented discipline. So tends mm-hmm. to be like also very friendly. You you can kind of imagine that by the naming of it, right? Machine learning versus uh, data privacy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what what kind of people would? I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> it's a. I mean, I think machine learning depends where where yeah. you're at. But when I when I first got involved, I felt a, a bit intimidated. But yeah, okay. I think I think there's good folks overall doing of course, of and course. good folks doing both, right? So. Um, Okay, this is the Data Democracy Podcast, Katie. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a question for you around that. Um, we talk a lot about data getting democratized in companies. More and more people can do more and more stuff with data. Um, I try to, to think about the end state of all that, what a data democracy is. Um, and so my question here is, um, 
What role should data privacy play when more and more data is becoming democratized? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, honestly, if I, if I were to share my thoughts, I think it's also, it's a matter of allowing better user control over the way that their data is being democratized, right? And mm. so um, I talk a little bit about concepts of data trust, of data collectives and so forth um, in the book. In my personal opinion of data democracy, it functions where as, as democratic participants, as uh, community members, as humans, um, as communities, right? As real, like we're social creatures. That's how we interact. Um, that the, the way that our data is used and the possibility to use our data becomes more in our own hands and less, um, less controlled by, let's say, like a few large institutions um, like the larger tech companies. And I think that that has that has also a lot of meaning here for smaller enterprises, um, in my opinion, or even mid-sized to large enterprises who are not in the big tech is, is that something that you can offer um, your users that they don't get other places, which is the ability to agree, the ability to consent, the ability to interact with their own data the ability to export and export and play with their data and making data like a real living thing for the humans involved, I think would also significantly change the types of things that we build. I think sometimes users have brilliant ideas on how to use their own data. Um, and if given the chance, could and would provide really amazing insights into how data can be honestly to better mm. their own lives and maybe the lives of community and the world. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point, KJ. That that allowing like in the course of data democratization, allowing users to control how their data is being used actually enhances our collective knowledge of what that data can be used for and what it means, how it is expressed. I think ah that was a small epiphany for me. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> of course. Um, so, so it's it's two questions, and 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 maybe we can turn it into one. But I'm so it'll be a little long. But I'm really I would be really really curious to know what your take. I'm sure you have heard about or read about uh, Tim Berners Lee's uh, second vision for the World Wide Web in the course of or in the after the rise of social media and so forth. He wanted to create this kind of building block uh, uh, web where everyone controlled their own data. I would be super curious to hear what you think about that. And and, and that really taps into the overall question of uh, what, how do you imagine the future of uh, data privacy? Yeah, I mean, um, Tim Berners-Lee and, and the work that he's also been doing advising Solid and so forth um, is quite interesting. It's this idea that uh, we put data in the hands of users and at the same time in the hands of companies that the users would like to interact with. And we give users the ability to reason about and control kind of what data they share to whom and under what circumstances. Um, I would almost take that and go further. 
-hmm. and say, uh, what if uh, we could also, as data users, connect our data with other people without going through an intermediary? Um, I think this has been strongly influenced by my work in what I call distributed machine learning, but what we in industry call either federated learning and, and the field that I worked in encrypted machine learning where um, I was able to see, okay, we can perform fully distributed machine learning. We can protect the data sets that we use. And for me, as uh, also somebody that's worked in social sciences and so forth, I started to wonder, is this not the way we should be solving like a bunch of problems that we have? Like the energy crisis that we've been having within Germany, at least, like like the like mm. numerous, like the cl climate change, climate catastrophe and so forth. Is there not ways that if we were to empower kind of the data that we can get on the ground and instead of pulling it and centralizing it and running global models, which by the way, are not often very accurate or useful on an individual or on a community or local level, um, is there not a way for us to, on local levels, on community levels, or even across distributed points, uh, geographies that have similar problems, is there not a way for us to better connect data to solve a specific problem and to also then, if needed, build privacy in? So that, you know, if I want to study, let's say, particular energy consumption patterns in this part of the world versus another part of the world that's quite similar, that we do so without necessarily leaking that you sit at home watching Netflix all weekend or something like this, right? <laughs> we, we want to we want to like make sure that, you know, we build the types of privacy we need and you'd be surprised the amount of information that could leak from just sharing a little bit of data. Um, but how can we empower people to share the data in new ways and form new problems? And I gave a keynote on this last week at PyData Amsterdam and I think numerous people came up to me afterwards on how do we do community-driven machine learning where we're solving like the most relevant problems right now? And I've been doing some work over the past year in public sector uh, within Europe and within Germany. And it's amazing to me how small of a change you need to have a huge impact in things like public sector and things like transportation and things like critical infrastructure. And I think it'd be really cool to have uh, people want to share data um, to have direct impact in their own life and the lives of others by maybe focusing some of their energy and time on sharing data in this way. Wow. Uh, thank you. Thank you, KJ. Uh, and uh, it was really a privilege to, to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. Um, and uh, for the listeners out there, please... Um, Take a look at practical data privacy if you want to know more. Uh, they work better together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Thank you. Thanks.